Good morning, one and all. <clears throat> all right. We're in the middle of a teaching series which we're calling Living Values, and we're taking a, a closer look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount during this, this series, which you'll find, by the way, in Matthew 5 to 7. Um, worth having a look maybe when you're at home. And really the spirit of, of this uh, series is, um, I guess you could sum it up with Romans 12.2, which says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So that picture up there, I reckon, is a, a bit of a picture of what this series is about as well. Not that you chop your head off, but that you um, have a good look, a bit, a good self-examination, and you realize, you think a little bit about what are the values um, that I hold to. Maybe there's some that aren't actually very helpful in your life. And as Christians, we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to say, Jesus, what, what, do you, what would you have us um, do? How would you have us live? All right. So chapter 5 of Matthew was all about the what of the Christian life. Jesus went through a bunch of old ancient laws and he reinterpreted them. And chapter 6, I, I think of it as more about the how of, of Christian living. So um, what's the right spirit in which we make our actions authentic and not phony? For example, last week David started us into chapter 6 and um, Jesus' concern there was about giving and he wants us to do it in the right spirit. We don't give generously so that we can build up our reputation. We don't give generously to increase our power and influence or for show. That's kind of a phony way of doing it. Um, but do it generously with a generosity of heart that comes from trusting that God has enough for you. Do it because you're grateful for God's provision and care. Can you see how it's, it's how you do it? It's not just what you do, it's how you do it too. So today, our theme is prayer. And if you, um, I, I used to be a maths teacher and I, I, I'm sort of one for symmetry and balance and patterns. And um, it's no coincidence, I reckon, that the Lord's Prayer is at the exact center of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So when you're reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle, Lord's Prayer. Because at the very heart of following Jesus, the powerhouse or the, the living well that's at the heart of it, at the center, is intimacy with God. So you might be inspired to be a good person, a better person than you have been as you read his, his uh, sermon, but you won't get there without this, without this at the center, which is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is, is really the purpose of our lives. Um, it's why God created us. Um, so we're not just here just to believe God, believe that he's there, and not only to just obey God, those things are good, but God actually created us for friendship with himself. So today, um, our living value is we are made for intimacy with God. So I hope it's a challenge to you. Um, it's always a challenge to me. How do I actually hear from God? How do I communicate with God? 
So we're going to listen to Jesus' words today, hopefully go away with more of an idea of how, how can I build intimacy with God into my life. Sound good? Sound like an interesting thing? I hope so. All right. So let's get straight into it. Jesus starts by, um, in, as he's going to tell us how to pray, telling us how not to pray. All right? So there's two ways not to pray that Jesus highlights. The first one is he's basically saying, don't pray for show because God meets us mainly in the secret places. All right? These are the words of, of Jesus. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to the Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Now, rabbis of Jesus' day prohibited the devout believer to pray loudly in public, okay? It was not allowed. But, of course, they found a loophole that the, the rules still allowed you to pray quietly in public, right? Couldn't pray loudly, but you could pray quietly in public. So good folk would say their prayers right out on the street um, as long as it was low volume. This might seem very strange to us. Why would you do that? Um, but it's really because there was a common hope that if only all Israel would return to God and, and follow him, that the Messiah would come. Okay? So if only everybody would turn to God, this great thing, God would act. God would do this great thing. So what they, the idea was stand on the street and what you're saying to everyone is, look at me, I'm making God a priority and so should you. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like, um, yeah, you're doing your private prayers but you're doing it to make a public statement. And Jesus noticed this and he wasn't impressed. Um, he felt that public, private devotion is phony. Right? It's, not, it's not real. It muddles up our intentions in prayer. Are you performing for people or are you praying to God? So his, his suggestion is that we go to pray in private. If, if we, um, in the next little section, um, I think you're, you're ahead of us, Steve. No, back. Bring it back. Um, in, the, in the section where he says... Uh, but when you go away, when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you. Um, in the, if you read the, the Greek literally, um, Jesus' instruction is this. He says, when you pray, go into your supply room, lock the door and pray to your father in secret. Now, the supply room was the only room in a, a poor Palestinian sort of home um, that could be locked. So in one sense... It was the least sacred of places to go. Um, it was used usually to store feed, um, small, fa um, small animals maybe in there, tools, other supplies, that sort of thing. But the in important consideration here is that the door can be locked. It's private. It's also amazing, I think, to think that in that one sentence where Jesus is telling us to go to our supply rooms to pray, the whole idea of temple worship is kind of revised. It's no longer the holy of holies, 
that special room in, in the temple where God dwells, um, that's, not, no, that's no longer the, the special meeting place between people and God. It's now any room with a lock on the door. So um, Jesus kind of throws it out there for us all. So I ask you today, do you have a secret place to meet with God? It's a good question to ask yourself. Let's move on to the second way that Jesus says not to pray. He says, don't go on and on because God already knows our needs. Here's his words. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask him. So this next misunderstanding that Jesus corrects is believing that there must be a lot of prayer before it starts to work. Um, and the pagan world of Jesus' day believed this. So you get Roman philosophers um, like Seneca. He said, fatigue the gods, you know. Pray so much that the gods get tired listening to you. And Marshall said, let each one wear him or herself out with petitions. So he wants you to wear yourself out. There was this sense that the gods were reluctant to hear prayers unless the prayers were long. And that only when the petitioner had proven themselves sincere by sweating and toiling, spending time in hard work, only then the divinities may begin to listen. I reckon Christians too aren't immune to this sort of thinking. I've seen it quite a lot in my life, in fact. Um, this sense that I just need to improve my technique or I just need to maybe do a few more prayers or you know, show that I'm even a little bit more um, pious or something so that God will hear me. And Jesus actually releases his people from having to make a special effort to guarantee access to God. It's a relief, I think, to know that the Father to whom we pray is not a reluctant listener. And the paradox to me is that when we know that we don't have to pray a lot, we will surprisingly desire to pray more because it becomes more like a friendship and less like a workload or a burden that we're putting on ourselves. Christians can simply pour out their hearts to an eagerly waiting Father, says Jesus. And because the Father is good, much prayer is not required. And because the Father is God, the information isn't necessary. You don't need to fill him in on all the details. He already knows. So now we move to how to pray. We've had a couple of things about how not to pray. Take those on board, and now we're, we're sort of freed up a little bit to learn how to pray. And Jesus teaches us how to pray by giving us a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And it's really um, the daily companion and prayer book for a Christian. You should have it in your back pocket um, at all times. In it, we have Jesus' own priorities in prayer. So it's really helpful, especially if you think, I'm not used to praying, I don't know what to say, I don't get how to do it. He gives you six petitions here, which in Jesus' um, teaching, that's, that's all you need to do. 
Um, to me, there's an irony in how we use the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray like this so that we can be honest and authentic and on the right track in relating to God. But often we've turned it into a rote poem that we just memorize and we reel off a bit mindlessly. Um, to me, well, I, I think it's not just to me, to everyone, the Lord's Prayer is, is not supposed to remind, sorry, not supposed to remove the mind, but to engage the mind. So if you feel like the Lord's Prayer has become a bit kind of a bit of a mindless repetition for you, just rolling off your tongue without much thought going on, my suggestion is that you slow it right down. Pray this prayer thought by thought, using each fr phrase not so much as just say the phrase and then move on, but use it kind of like as a handrail that helps you to find your own words. It's a short prayer, but um, I think it should be chewed over like a cow chews its cud rather than swallowed mindlessly like a tablet. All right? Um, so here's what Jesus, um, Jesus says. I'm splitting it into, into two parts, okay? So the first three petitions go like this. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With the address, our Father in heaven, um, it's literally our Father who is in the heavens or who is in the skies, in the, if you read it in the Greek. Jesus' name for God, for starters, um, throughout the Gospels, is, is Father. And it's a strikingly simple way of talking about God. Jesus' custom is to talk intimately of my Father, or sometimes absolutely as the Father. Um, and when he talks to his disciples, he usually speaks of your Father. Um, and it's actually, this is the only time that he says, our Father. Um, so when Jesus gives us uh, this, this phrase, our Father, he's giving us um, the right to call his Father by the address, our Father. And he's passing on something of his own priceless relationship to God. And I reckon that even just that first two, two words are an inexpressible gift to us, that we can say, our Father, alongside Jesus. Now, the, we often say our Father in heaven, and in our contemporary understanding, these words can feel like God's far away because we think heaven, that's that far away place that I'm not sure what it is and there's a whole lot of you know, uncertainty. But um, this is where I think reading it in the Greek and realizing that it's saying heaven means sky in the Greek. So um, when it says our Father who is in the heavens, it's kind of like he's in this, he's he's above us, and no matter what sky I go to, he's there. I reckon Psalm 33, verse 13 to 15, captures the intended meaning, and you'll see how it doesn't speak about God as distant at all. So here's what it says: The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the peoples in the world. From where he sits enthroned, he turns his gaze on all who dwell on earth. He fashions all the hearts of them and understands all their works. Does that sound like a distant God? I think not. 
Um, so let, when we say our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, don't think far away, all right? Let's get into um, these, these petitions, these things that we're asking for. Um, the first three ask for the establishment of God's reign in our lives and in our world. But it's not us doing anything. We're not doing anything yet, okay? So we're not saying, um, God, um, let us hallow your name. Let us do your will. But it's saying, God, you do this. You do this for us. Um, so you'll notice that there's no us, no, um, no me, no we. It's only your in the first three petitions. So the focus here, I reckon, is let God be God. Um, so we're saying, God, you be God in my life and in the world. Um, we don't know how God will fulfill this, but the implication is that we leave it to him because he's God and we're not. All right? So hallowed be your name. We're asking God to, set a, um, to be set above us as central and important and so to be God to us and to the world. Hallowed be your name. Honored, may you have honour in my life and in the world. The significance of your name there is that God's real identity be revealed. We're, we're asking God, may, may who you really are be known, celebrated and honoured. Your kingdom come. I could speak for a long time about the word kingdom because it's quite a, it's one of those words that Jesus uses, the kingdom of God. Um, but I'm just going to give you four pictures of what I think this means. When we pray your kingdom come, we're saying may, your re may you reign in our hearts. So God, reign in my life. Um, help me so that I'm not just ruled by my own desires and designs, but by you. Secondly, um, reign in my witness, in our witness. So we're praying for the good news of God to be faithfully preached and shared. So may your kingdom come. May your reign come through our witness. And may your kingdom come in our present society. So God, be manifest in upholding justice, in bringing peace, in, um, in helping us to, to be loving towards one another. And fourthly, may your kingdom come in the future. We're praying for Christ's return, for all history to be brought to fulfillment. So does that make sense? Your kingdom come, it's a big word, it's a big phrase that means a lot. Um, I think it means something about our hearts, about us and our witness, about our present society and about the future. May God be over all those things. And then he says, your will be done. What is the will of God? I reckon in this context, you could say that the will of God is the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I pray this, I think, your Sermon on the Mount be done. <laughs> um, with us, it might seem impossible, but not so with God. Lastly, the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, I believe that little phrase applies to all three of the preceding petitions. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a corrective for us because our tendency when we pray is to kind of be magnetically drawn to our own circumstances and our own concerns in, in, in what's going on in our own life. And here we're encouraged to find a wider world. On earth as it is in heaven covers the whole globe. 
So we're not just saying in my heart as it is in heaven or in our church as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, the second three petitions um, move move us to to more human matters, all right? So in the second half, um, the prayer... The prayers, um, the prayer shifts to us and our and we, um, and they're as prominent as yours were in the first three petitions, um, where God's, what we're doing is, um, where, sorry, let me just, yep, what am I up to? Okay, um, our human concerns are never peripheral to God. So while the first three sort of say, let's let God be, be God, and that's first. We're um, pleased that Jesus isn't satisfied when we only pray for that, but that um, he gives equal time to human matters. Um, therefore, it's never selfish to pray about our own physical, social, and personal needs. Jesus is telling us here to pray exactly for those things. Give us today, give us this day, our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those Sorry, as we have forgiven those who sin against us, and don't let us, don't let us be led into any temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So give us this day our daily bread. Pretty clear. Don't spiritualize it. Don't think of it as like some sort of spiritual bread. It's about Jesus. I reckon it's about literal bread. Bread costs money. Money requires work. Work requires good government, good business, good labor. And so we're praying here for everything necessary for life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, a home, family and friendship, good government, government and peace. Okay, those, that's all encapsulated in give us this day our daily bread, the things we need for life. And forgive us our sins as we forgiven we have forgiven those who sin against us. Now, this is an interesting one because in Jewish thought, uh, the Jewish thought of Jesus' day, every sin created a deposit or a debt before God. And the idea was that it accumulated to form a separating wall between a person and God. Okay, so every sin I do creates these debts and they they create a wall and then I'm separated from God. It's kind of a cool picture in some ways at helping people to understand what what sin is. But then they had this idea that on the other hand, every good deed contributed to one's assets before God, which kind of created a bridge over those sins, right? That was their thinking. Um, Sins were demerits that separated. Good deeds were merits that connected. Jesus takes this well-known idea and he tells us we can simply ask the Father to wipe out our debts. How about that? Don't worry about all the other stuff. He just says, go to God, just ask him to wipe them out. Now, that, that's asking that's pretty audacious, but Jesus teaches us to approach God in this way. I reckon this is breathtaking and it's the gospel in full force. You have that great privilege to go to God and to say, God, please forgive me for the things that I've done and have them wiped away. This great privilege comes with a great responsibility 
also to be equally ready to forgive one another. So we are awed at receiving God's grace and at the same time we're challenged by our responsibility to do likewise to one another. Almost because it's so hard to, um, to sort of fully take that in, as soon as the um, Lord's Prayer's over, Jesus gives a little forgiveness PS, right? I, that's what I call it, like a little PS at the end. And it says, he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And it's almost like he's just saying, yeah, you heard me right. I'm, that, I didn't make a mistake in, in the Lord's Prayer. Um, so I'm just going to tell you straight away after it, yep, um, I'm reminding you again straight away that the great spiritual privilege is yours and the great social responsibility of forgiveness is also yours. So take those on board. And then lastly, don't let us be led into any temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This petition, I reckon, flows really naturally from the last one. We've just asked for the removal of our debts. And now we also ask to be kept from the temptations and from the evil that made our prayer for forgiveness necessary in the first place. We want to stay on the right path. We want to um, be, uh, be not straying off it. And so we need to walk intimately with God to do it. And we're asking for his guidance. Thus ends the Lord's Prayer. As a way of conclusion, just um, go to that last bit, but which was about fasting. And I want to make it about responding in devotion. Because some of us may fast. Jesus didn't make a huge deal of fasting. In fact, this is the only time he ever taught about fasting. But um, I think of it as, as, as we grow in our intimacy with God, we want to respond in devotion to God. And that might be literally fasting, or it might be some changes that we make in our life. Um, it, might be, it may be um, you know, a, a something that we think, hey, I'm going I'm to introduce this into my life as a way of saying, God, I think this is where you're, you're leading me. Um, again, Jesus says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth. That's the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father, who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. So we learn to converse with God through the days of our lives. And we respond to God maybe through this or that act of devotion in our life. And don't let those little responses turn phony. The temptation is to subtly advertise to our friends um, maybe our personal disciplines or, or things that we do in our life in a way to sort of make us look more spiritual or something. Don't do that. Just do it for God. Do it in devotion to him, not for any wider audience. So may you be ever-growing in intimacy with God. Let's make continuous conversation with our loving Father and experience, uh, let's make that a reality in our lives and let's experience the fullness, sorry, the fullness of life 
in his presence. What we're going to do now is move into our time of response. So a song's going to play shortly and it'll give you a little bit of a chance to, uh, to just reflect on our living value. Um, and we're going to, I've got some questions up on the screen which might just help you to think through your responses. So let me just read them to you. Have I experienced prayer as a conversation with God? Has that ever been your experience? Um, what is he saying to me now? If, if that's never been your experience and you think, I don't even know how, in the quiet, just see if you can listen to what God might be saying to you. Second question is, how might today's teaching change my usual practice of private prayer? Have a bit of a think about what you normally do. Do you need to make any changes as a result of the teaching today? Also, what might be blocking me from conversing honestly to God, our Father? If you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, Matt, whatever, I'm not that interested, prayer doesn't really do it for me, okay, that's cool, but maybe think about why. Why, why are you having that response? Um, why aren't you ready to take that on board? And lastly, how might our church become a more prayerful community? Um, what, what might we do corporately to be able to pray um, and, and be devoted to God together? There's some questions to think about and we'll have um, a little time of response now. Thank you.